Good morning, saints of HBC. You could turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5 today. Just want to give a particular word of thanks to uh, the worship team, production, all the members. Uh, and this weekend was a busy one for them. Some of you were here Friday night for a wonderful time of uh, singing and praying, and um, that was a lot of singing and uh, work for them to prepare for Friday and then to turn around and be here today. Uh, we're just appreciative of their leadership there, as well as a full weekend with um, uh, yesterday doing some outreach over at the Catawba Ridge Apartments. And if you were over there, uh, not just serving, but if you were, um, live from over there and ended up coming today, we'd love to welcome you as a guest. Thankful you're here. But overall, uh, then the turn to come to here this morning, it was truly a wonderful weekend with an emphasis on the full. Uh, lots there. And uh, yet, God still has more good gifts to give to his children this morning. He never runs out, and we see them as we look at Romans 5, 4, and 5 this morning, breaking down more of the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. As we have been hearing each week where we start in verse 1, therefore we've been justified by faith, that's a sublime reality for the Christian. I mean, that's the best word for it. It's truly something otherworldly, transcendent, can't get your mind or heart or arms around what it is to be justified by faith, to know that you'd stand perfect and pure in the presence of God because His Son's righteousness is being given to you by faith and your sin has been taken away by His sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, Paul could say something like, now you have peace with your Creator. Not some shallow, I just have a sense of peace. You really know objectively outside of yourself, God is not angry with you, enraged with you as He is with sinners, not opposed to you, entirely for you and not against you forever. And that's truly the depths of the peace we have with God. And then we live in his world of grace and not guilt. You just sang it. Sometimes those lyrics we sing kind of just can roll right off of us. But what a wonderful lyric. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Is that how you live your Christian life? It seems to me that we like to sneak in the work and that when I sin, I'm, no, I'm not a debtor to grace. I'm a debtor to the law and I've got to work my way back out. Well, that's not what we just sang. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. What a burden it is to be constrained to grace. We don't live in that world, do we? What relationship do we have that is so full of grace that whenever you mess up or screw up or fall short, you don't come back groveling, face in the ground, earning your way back. You can just go back to that person and stand in complete grace. That's what's sublime about being justified by faith. That's what It doesn't add up down here. We don't work that way. And we don't live up to that which we say, right? We, we owe to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, God, you have to do this. Let your goodness be like a leash to bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. How much of this is God's doing in our lives? It is everything. And then we sing, above all else, I adore your name. Raise your hand if you've done that in the past 24 hours. You've perfectly adored the name of God. We haven't. We don't. We don't have that perfect righteousness. We fall short. That would be crazy for us to think that every thought, every motivation, 
every word, every moment of the day, we're adoring God. It'd be nice in theory, but in reality, those are all the ways in which we fall far short of the privileges we've been given, justified by faith. We stand in grace, and then at the end of that line of our salvation, we have hope in the glory of God, that we will be with him forever. So these are all wonderful things we have justified by faith that makes our salvation, in the truest sense, something we might say to our kids, telling them a fairy tale or some story, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. I mean, if you understand the greatest you know, tales and uh, myths of history of maybe some great war and here's this wonderful king and there's these enemies of the king who were trying to overthrow his kingdom and, and one of these enemies of the king who, who hates him most deeply is captured and brought over but instead of being constrained to the dungeon forever into jail he is actually turned around into the service of the king and now he's been given all the rights and privileges as if he was raised in that kingdom. And not only just maybe as a servant, he's brought into the throne room of this king. And he's, he's now a friend of this king whom he was plotting and trying to kill. And he's completely changed. And then he's promised that no matter how you might screw up in the future, you're now in my kingdom. You're one of, of my servants. In fact, I'll bring you into my family. And you get that glory with me forever. If you tell stories like that to your kids, those are gospel stories. Those belong to us. And they should sound too good to be true. And, and that's how good we have it to know that we have been justified by faith. We're at peace with God. We stand in his grace and we rejoice in the glory of God. Yet, after all that, what does he say in verse 3? It gets even better. Not only that. And when you hear a line like that, you're prepared for a big surprise that, you know, hey, it's, you know, the end of the school year and the kids are ready to get out. And on their last day, it's like, hey, all right, school's almost out, kids. And you're going to go to school this week, Amos, and Friday. Man, when you get out of school, you know, you've been talking about being done. And you'll be done with school. Heinz, boys. And dad comes and says, and not only that, as soon as you get out, you're going to summer school. <laughs> and you would go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, not only that is supposed to mean something better's coming. That's how we use it. The, it, it gets even better than this. And that's where our minds would be going with Paul. If he said, you've been justified by faith, and you have peace with God, and you stand in his grace, and there's future glory. Hey, Christian, get ready for this. Not only that, now all the world is yours. All the kingdoms of the world. All the powers are yours. If you, you want to be like Jesus, you can walk across the water. And so you can just say, you know, Honey, I'm going over to England, see ya, and you start sliding across the Atlantic. And you know what? 
Not only that, you have the power to command dolphins when your legs get tired to come underneath you and you water ski dolphins across the Atlantic into England. And you go, man, not only that, what a wonderful thing to be a Christian. All the powers of the world to me. That's what you'd think he would say. But what does he actually say? Not only that, (laughs) record scratch for the ages. We rejoice in our sufferings. And you're like, what? So my salvation is so wonderful. Not only that, you get to suffer. So you will get sick with some diseases. Your, your life will be hard. You might get monkey pox. Right? I mean, it's just never ending. Life in a fallen world. And so you do go in just this short section... In Romans 5, 1 to 5, the first two verses, you go from the sublime, the it's too good to be true, to verses 3 to 5, hey, we rejoice in our sufferings. Sweet. Nobody does that. Oh, cool. Persecution. Man, can't believe I get that. That's not the way we think. And yet that's the track that Paul has us on. And so we've asked ourselves so far, how did Paul get here? Really, how did this truth get in here? How did we make just this hard left from we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God to we rejoice in our sufferings? And we've seen so far in the last three weeks, if you haven't been here, you need to go back and listen, how suffering is part of God's greater plan for his glory in our good. Why? Not because, again, we have uh, some masochistic mentality that we, we love pain and it's good and yeah, bring it on. No, pain hurts. Suffering hurts. Trials hurt. We feel that way about them, and that's normal to do. But he's saying in verse 3, you know something of what God is doing through the suffering, and it's how he uses it to work on us so he can work in us. That's what suffering is doing. As we said, it's pressing down on you and outside of you and around you, so it's working something in you that we call perseverance, which produces character, which then shows that suffering is the acid test. It's the crucible. It's, it's, it's showing you the faith that you really have. Not just in, and here's the difference, I'll use objective, as in when people say that's an objective truth. It's a truth outside of me that exists irregardless of what I think of it, Right? And that's verses 1 and 2, if you're following with me in Romans 5. Verses 1 and 2, these are objective truths of my salvation, signed, sealed, delivered, can't mess with them. But now he shifts to say there is some subjectivity to now what you know about this faith you have. How are you going to know all these wonderful things that you believe to be true are actually true about you? Subjectively, in your life, your daily experience. Suffering is going to reveal it. It's going to show you what you really have like nothing else will. And that's what we've been walking through the past few weeks. Paul wants to say, yeah, there is these objective realities, these hopes we have in the glory of God and his salvation. But there's also a hope we have that suffering reveals, that really galvanizes, strengthens your faith. Not just in God, but your assurance that he's actually done it in you because you see the result of what you have after you've been through the flames. 
And that's where it brings us to today to talk about hope. So let's look at Paul's perspective on hope. No longer talking about hope for the glory of God and our salvation. Now he's talking about the hope we have and the security, the assurance of our salvation when we go through suffering, which we all will. So follow with me as I read Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. All flesh is like grass, brothers and sisters. Our lives perishing, passing away like a vapor. And the grass withers as we're looking at our lawns right now in this heat wave. And the flowers fade. But what stands forever? The word of God endures. So let's see that this enduring word has a hopeful word for us today amidst our sufferings. On the subject of hope, finish this phrase. Abandon all hope. Carolina Panther fans, no. Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. It's not Dante's pizza. It's Dante, the Italian writer from the 1300s in his divine comedy, the three-part epic poem that starts with Dante's Inferno. His, his, he's being escorted by Virgil the philosopher to the threshold, the gates of hell, and over the threshold to hell is the line, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Why? Because hell is a place of utter hopelessness. There is no going back. When, when that day comes for the person who doesn't find themselves in the righteousness of Christ, you do abandon all hope forever. And that might be... Maybe the only thing you could get a bunch of people to agree on if you're going to talk about hope. Because then when you move outside of the realm of what is hope, you're going to get a lot of varying opinions on it to try to define it. And so we're going to start with, as we've been doing before, just looking at a survey of Scripture to say, what does it mean to be hopeful, to have biblical hope? If we're going to know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, character Proven character. Your tested faith is going to produce hope. We have to ask the question, what is that hope? Uh, We can start by saying what it isn't, which are worldly definitions. Uh, You can look up hope on your phone right now and get Merriam-Webster. It'll tell you hope is when you want something to happen or be true. It's wishful thinking. You have no real grounds for it, broadly speaking. You just hope something good comes of it. Uh, That thought crossed my mind as I took some vitamins this morning that taste awful. I was looking at it going, I mean, I I hope these work. My life isn't resting on them, though I believe they're going to do me some good today. But why do you eat oatmeal in the morning? Surely it's not for the flavor. It's in the hope that it'll lower your cholesterol. And so you weigh in the balance. Your hope in a healthier body and your lack of joy in eating oatmeal. And you take whichever one matters more to you. 
So we can have just that general sense of wishful thinking. Look, there goes another rubber tree plant. You know, he had high hopes. That's kind of the way a lot of people live. It's just this general feel good, uh, send out positive vibes, and I hope they come back to me. That's a generic way to think about hope. Maybe in society, too, you have a spectrum from the person that just seems to be naturally optimistic to completely pessimistic, nihilistic. And I'll give you a spectrum by way of quotes. The hope optimist, and not saying this is biblical hope, but we're defining it by what it isn't, uh, might be a false teacher like Joel Osteen. And you heard it here first, where he might just, his classic line, get your hopes up, raise your expectations, your best days are still ahead. And he's just selling you a bag of goods. Your best days are ahead. He has no idea what your tomorrow is going to bring. And he's not grounding that statement in suffering. He's grounding it in this, this idea that uh, you put God in debt to you with what you might do for him. That's why he's a false teacher. It's not hard to figure out. But he's a hope optimist. And you can move to the hope realist. Uh, Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. And that's a realist. I think you could agree to live without hope is to cease to live. If you lose hope in everything, it's going to be hard to find the motivation to wake up in the morning. Maybe you move from realist to cynic. One of my favorite uh, quotes in the cynic of hope would be, kids, you tried your best and failed miserably. The lesson is never try. Homer. Now, I won't tell you which Homer said that, the philosopher or the cartoon. I'll let you figure that one out. But that would be a hope cynic, which is why even try if you're going to just be let down in the end. So don't try. And then maybe the last one, a hope nihilist, somebody that would say there's no hope. Friedrich Nietzsche said, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. He would just say, well, there's no point, there's no meaning. And if you give somebody hope in a meaningless world, all you're doing is tormenting them. Because they're believing in something that's actually never going to come true. So you could have that spectrum in society of what is hope. And it's a sliding scale depending on who you ask. And you know this even by your own experience. You run into people that seem to have a little more pep in their step. And see the world with the rose-colored lenses. They may not even be a Christian. And in fact, sometimes their hope puts our Christian hope to shame being honest with you. I mean, you meet unbelievers that walk around seemingly more hopeful for the future than a Christian is. And you say, why is that? Well, they're buying into something, whether it's they just want to just repeat to themselves the best days are ahead so they actually believe it or in some type of karma. But whatever it is, you're going to have a sliding scale, a spectrum of hope. And the question in Paul's time, if he is... Uh, writing this to this church, and they hear the word hope, how are they deciphering what he means by that? Uh, if they're a Roman citizen, if they're maybe some uh, unbelieving pagan who believes in Greek mythology sitting in his uh, church and kind of interested in this Christianity stuff, maybe they're coming in with uh, hoping to find some hope because uh, in, in Paul's time in Rome, you're under the thumb of Caesar and the only hope you have is to submit to him. The mantra of that day would have been Caesar is Lord. And so here's these Christians who seem hopeful amidst suffering, saying Christ is Lord. And so maybe you're this curious pagan who, who the only time you remember hearing of hope was learning about um, Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus and Pandora. 
Long story long, this would be the, the, the Hellenized view, the, the world of the Greek gods. How does creation begin? Where does man fit in? Is short story, you know, Prometheus steals fire from the gods to give man hope that he can advance technology, that he can make progress. He's just not purposeless in the world. And Zeus gets angry at Prometheus, but instead of going after him, he goes after his brother Epimetheus. And the names are significant because Prometheus, he's always looking ahead and figured things out, wanted to give technology to the man. Uh, Epimetheus is always looking back and not thinking ahead and kind of um, potential to be a sucker. So Zeus goes after him and says, hey, I got this um, lady for you to marry. I'm going to send her down. Her name's Pandora, but she comes with a box. And Prometheus goes to his brother like, bro, don't trust Zeus. Bad dude. Don't, t- don't get married to that girl. And Epimetheus is like, bro, I'm in love. I mean, it always happens that way, doesn't it? And so he marries Pandora. And what happens next? Literally all hell breaks loose because Pandora is so curious about what's in the box from Zeus, the wedding gift that she opens it, and what comes out? Disease, destruction, death for all of mankind. But she closes the box just in time to preserve hope. So, in the time of Paul, put yourself back in the sandals of the 60s AD, a couple decades after Jesus. You're kind of between, you know, do I carry on just believing in temporary hopes of uh, Rome and power and, and money, and I've got to get with that? Or here's this new hope that I hear about that's not for a kingdom only of this world, but for a kingdom of the world to come. So you start listening to Paul and what he has to say about hope. And here's how Paul would break down the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. It just comes down to this simple difference, and it's the same for us today. Not what is your hope in, but who is your hope in? Is your hope in God, or is your hope in man? Man's intellect, man's abilities, man's powers to figure things out for himself in in advance, or is that you believe in a God who is sovereign over all and your hope is in what future he has for you. So if you want to put a biblical definition down for hope in your notes, you could call it this. Hope is looking forward to the future with confident expectation in God. Hope is looking forward. It is about looking forward to the future. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, looking forward, having some hope, looking forward to the future with confident expectation in God. And the difference that Paul would bring out from the Bible would be that the hope of the godly people is rooted in who God is, and it will bear the fruit of righteousness. It'll change you to put your hope in God. However, The hope of the ungodly is rooted in man and will bear the fruit of hopelessness. So Paul might point you to a scripture if you're saying, Paul, break down this view of hope in the Bible. He might quote to you Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. That's a positive message. But notice where David goes with this. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. He's not saying to look within yourself and find hope. He's saying, look away from self and look to God, which is what we heard last week in Hebrews 12. Looking away to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, is where we find our hope. The hope of the godly is rooted in God. You you hear it in not just a, a present profession of saying, put your hope in the Lord, but even David in Psalm 22 says that we can look back and see who those people of faith have always trusted in. Listen to David's words. Psalm 22, 3-5. to 
He writes, Yet you are holy, God, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Why should Israel, the people of God, hope in him? Verse 4, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is the history of the godly. They look to God for their hope and not to themselves. Whereas, on the other hand, the hope of the ungodly is crushed. Job 27.8. What is the hope of the godless when he is cut off? When God requires his life? Very straightforward question, isn't it? What hope do the godless have when he is cut off and God requires his life? Or Proverbs 11.7. When a wicked man dies so will his expectations and the hope of a strong man perishes. There it is. The contrast could not be more black and white. Why do the godly have hope? It's because their hope is in God. And with having hope in God, the expectation for their future, whether here or forever, is always full of hope because of who God is. He's a faithful God. And on the other hand, an ungodly person, one who doesn't trust in Yahweh, When he perishes, so do his hopes perish with them. And so you see even in Jesus' words that we heard in Mark 8.35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's it's this trade-off. Where is my hope? I'm either going to put everything in this world and in myself and try to figure my own way out. And the Bible is very clear and straightforward. If you put your hope in that, whatever you might attain down here, The Bible will promise you this, it will perish in the end. But if you seek to what? Lose your life for the sake of Christ and the Gospels, you'll be saved in the end. So biblical hope, answering question number one, in a nutshell, is the reality that you look forward as a Christian with confident expectation of the God who is over your future. And he gives a hope of a more glorious future than you could dream. So now let's go back to Romans 5. Now that we've kind of set the table of what biblical hope is, the confident expectation of the God who is over your future, sovereign over it. Now let's look how Paul connects hope to what we've been talking about when it comes to suffering in verse 3 and 4. Back to our text in Romans 5. Not only that, it gets better than just this hope we have in the glory of God and our salvation. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering is going to produce perseverance in our lives. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. Now remember, Paul already said we have a hope in our salvation that is objectively true outside of ourselves. But now he wants to shift your thinking to say, in your daily existence... What you can look at and see and taste and touch, the things around you, what's going to give you hope that it's not all meaningless in this lifetime, especially when you go through suffering, is that your proven faith or proven character produces a hope in you that says, I really do believe in my salvation being secure. Even though my circumstances people might look at and put me to shame. That's where that phrase comes in. When Christians suffer, when they go through hard times, when the people of God, when it looks like everything around them is crumbling and mockers want to mock and they want to, it's encapsulated in Isaiah 66, 
Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. As in you're going through suffering and hard time. And those who hate God and mock him and think you're a fool for following him will say, Oh, if your God is really in charge and all powerful, hey, let him be glorified that we may see your joy. But what does he say after that? But it is they who shall be put to shame. Because that's, that's the fear. How does hope relate to character? When you have gone through trials and testing and suffering and your faith comes out stronger, you actually show yourself and a watching world that your faith isn't just some pie-in-the-sky theology. It's shoe-leather faith. It touches the ground. It changes the person you are. Character shows up. Proven character, tested character. Over the course of your lifetime as a Christian, you act less like your old sinful self in the way the world does when they go through hard times and more like what you saw in the life of Christ when we went through the Gospel of Mark. That he continued to persevere through it for the joy set before him all the way to the cross, never sinning once. And you can, you can land that in your own experience, can't you? Think of when you became a Christian. What you immediately had, I imagine, was a hope of salvation for heaven. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. If you believe that as a young child or a teenager or later in your years, either way, part of the good news of the gospel was Salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord, and, and the younger you are, maybe the more real it seemed that heaven is really worth living for. But as time goes on, that hope that's out there that you're waiting for can start to fall away when everything around you starts crumbling, doesn't it? And so trials and suffering and all the things you go through, life in a fallen world starts to test, how much do I really believe that? How much is my confidence really in God? Suffering comes in, which is going to test your faith. And you might start to ask the question about yourself, will I really make it? And what Paul just walked us through in verse 3 and 4 is that the character shows that you did make it. There's, there's still faith in God's standing. You passed the test. Your faith stands. Your security in Christ holds. And, and we, we, we talked about 1 Peter 3, the testing of our faith. 1 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice. Similar language to Romans 5. You're rejoicing what? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And we, we use that image that Peter used about tested faith and suffering. That it's like putting, well, you don't know if you have fool's gold or real gold, do you? You know, shh, oh man, this stuff's shiny, what is it? So you put it through the crucible, you turn up the heat, and as a certain amount of heat is applied, it starts to break it down at the component parts. Because even if it's real gold, there was still impurities in it. And so that heat, that flame, and Peter's using that picture, is 
melting this gold. And then there's a layer on top called the dross that would be scraped away. And then what do you have left over? The real thing. The tested thing. But what did God have to do to your heart to reveal what you really had? Your faith in Him. He had to, so to speak, turn up the heat in your life. Through suffering. And what did that do in your heart? It exposed that even as a Christian, there were still foreign metals in there. Impurity in your heart. Things you still loved of the world that you would have never seen without the suffering. And it, that heat starts separating it out and you felt that separation, haven't you? When you've gone through a trial and you saw, hey, there's something in my heart I didn't realize was here and it was so bound up in me in this trial, melted it and separated it. And I saw that though I love Jesus, like I was saying earlier about saying we adore you, there were still some things in the world I was holding on to. Uh, in or, uh, subordinate affections, things that were lesser. And now I've gone through the trial and the suffering and seen God is just doing this work in my heart and he's exposing what's still there through the trials that suffering brings. And then you, you've been through this. In the aftermath of a trial, you have looked back and said, or maybe somebody said it about you. You seem like a different person. Maybe, you've seen, maybe you haven't seen somebody in a few years, a Christian, and they come back and they're just full of grace in a way they weren't before. All the graces of the Spirit of God at work in their life. Fruits of the Spirit in greater degree because of the suffering than there were before. Because they purified. Greater love, greater joy, greater peace, greater patience. They were all given when you were given the Spirit. But they were still being what bound up in your heart with these other sins that just need pulled apart. And it's painful, isn't it? But then on the other side, you see the product. And you go, wow, my faith, it's the real thing. I may have had hopes that got crushed, dreams shattered, people lost. But what I haven't lost, now I see is the most precious thing to me. And it's Jesus Christ. You've passed the test. In the process in Romans 5.3 is what revealed that. Hope relates to character because it's the process from suffering to endurance to hope that helps you to see what you have. And now does it make sense you can rejoice a little bit and go, wait, I've, I, I'm counted worthy. God really, he counted me worthy enough to let me go through that. He really, he really believes in me. Now here's the rub. We, we may see something about our own faith in that and, and draw hope out of it. But we still lurking in the back of our minds, even when we have passed that test, we have gone through that trial and we know that there's going to be more trials to come. How do I know this hope will never let me down? That's the final question to ask. And that's the most fearful one, isn't it? You've passed tests and, and you've seen my faith is still secure, but how do I know this, this hope I now have won't ever let me down. What if I go through something even harder? I saw how I barely made it by the skin of my teeth. And it can produce some fear. It's as if you were asking the question. When you're, when you're, testing, when you're seeing your own faith as being tested, you're asking the question, okay, will I make it? Is it secure? 
But it seems to be now you're saying, well, at last, it's no longer asking about your own faith. You're asking, is God going to be faithful? How, how do I know I won't lose hope in him? How do I know God won't let me down? Is there something in God that I can test to see if, if my hope will be secure? So let's look for the answer now in verse 5. This is a shift now to how do I know this hope won't let me down? Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. So right out of the gate, you could say if you're fearful, wondering if I'm going to be disappointed, if God is going to let me down and I'll be put to shame by my hope in him, no, hope won't put you to shame. And again, you could understand how living the Christian life, people first think you're crazy for saying you believe in Jesus. Friends, family ostracize you. Say, why did you, what did you buy into? And then some even other people in your life, Christian or not, might see how you start really accelerating through the turn of suffering. And they might be like, man, you're really going all in on this thing. And you feel a little bit, maybe of the tension of, man, I'm really banking on God to get me through this, but what if he doesn't? And what if I look like a fool on the other end? And so it's kind of not just the personal shame you might feel. But it's, how am I going to look in other people's eyes when I really put my faith and hope in God? And what if he lets me down? How do I know he won't? Is the real question faith can ask. And we're thankful that God has an answer right here in verse 5. Hope will not put you to shame. You will not be let down by it. Because. And now we get to the good stuff. God's love has been poured into your heart. That's the reason. Now you're back to something outside of you that's inside of you. God's love for you in Christ. The reason as a Christian you're not worried about hope putting you to shame is because God has loved you by sending his son to die for you. He didn't just say he loved you. He showed it. Look at verse 8. You think I'm making this up? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us. Or another translation, he demonstrated his love for us. In that while we were that sinner, that enemy of God, hating God, child of the devil, under his wrath, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we've been now justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from the wrath? Of God. That fear, that, that wonder, that will I be put to shame? Paul says in verse 5, you won't be because you have to look past yourself now. Even though you were looking at your suffering and saying, God's producing something good in me, but how do I know it's going to last? And he says, now look back to Christ again. And remember what God did for you, sinner. While you were a sinner and enemy of God, he loved you. There's the proof. And then you just have to say, what more proof do I need? What else could be out there in the universe that I would demand as evidence of God's love for me than that he sent his son to die for me? That's what Paul wants you to know is happening in suffering that makes you able to rejoice. When you feel like you're hanging on a thread of faith and you've already walked through, what's that thread made of? It's, it's made of the presence of suffering and the process of endurance and the product of character. 
and the promise of hope, but you're still wondering, will I be put to shame because I'm not sure what that thread is hanging on in heaven? And Paul says, the Holy Spirit points you to the hands holding it in heaven. And it's the loving hand of God, your father, and the nail-pierced hand of Jesus' son, and says, is that enough for you to find hope in? And it is. And it's outside of you. It's not what you're now doing for yourself. It's what faith is looking to and seeing, wait, God's love for me is that great that his son died for me? And here's how it happens. You might be saying, but how does that actually happen in my heart when I'm going through suffering and I'm losing hope and I'm doubting my faith? He tells you right there in verse five, this experience of the love of God, God's love for you is poured into your heart and an ocean of love is poured into your heart through the indwelling Holy Spirit who's been given, gifted to you. How good is God in covering every angle of knowing where our faith could be weak when he brings us into salvation? And Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, and not only that, he sealed you with his Holy Spirit of promise. He made a deposit and it's protected and secured by the work of the Spirit in you. And in your lowest and darkest and most hopeless moments, the Spirit gets to work confirming in your heart that you are a child of God. He loves you. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is pouring an ocean of God's love into your heart. He's saying, lift up your head, child of God, and know that God, your Father, loves you irreversibly and everlastingly. That's the good news, not just of the gospel that saves you, but secures you and brings you all the way home. What more do you need to have hope today? Sincerely. Because there's nothing left behind the curtain after that. That's it. You go back to the gospel. He loved you enough for his son to come and die for you. And when you feel that in the least as a believer, he pours it on in the most through the spirit. And he doesn't ask for you to do anything other than to believe in it and to hope in it. These are realities true already of your life that he wants you to live up to the full blessings and promises of. I think of the wonderful lyric, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in your ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. What a beautiful phrase. It really echoes the prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, when Paul prays through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is enlarging your hearts in every dimension to know the what? The breadth and the width and the length and the depth. That's love in four dimensions. He wants you to know the love of God in Christ. So you experience the fullness of God in your life. He's going to stretch out the bounds of our hearts that just want to cave back in on themselves with more of what? The love of God for us in Christ. That's what he has for you today, believer. What more could he 
be doing for you to strengthen you this morning than to continue through the spirit in your heart to say, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. That's it. That's the security we have. And we sometimes in suffering say back when the spirit's witnessing God loves you and and we say back in our sinfulness and disbelief, I don't believe it, I need proof. And he says back to you, he gave you his son and then you, you still in your suffering say, well, but if I know he gave me a son, but why won't he let this end? Because in the suffering, it might start to feel like he, he went back on his promise. He's turned his back on me. He's given up on me. And the spirit witnesses Romans 5.11 or 5.10. Oh, you think he might have turned back on you and changed his mind? And then he says, think about this, believer. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And there it is. The pouring out of the love of God for you through the Spirit's work interceding in you. Reminding you of the unchanging promises of God. He's not turned back on you. Whatever the circumstances around you may say. As a child of God, if while you were his enemies, you were reconciled to God by Jesus dying on the cross. Much more now, you enjoy the reconciliation. You will be saved by his life, not yours. And that's where assurance is rested. That no matter what the world and sin and Satan in our flesh does to try to extinguish the fire, God's grace is pouring more on. It's from Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read it, you should. If you haven't, right after the Bible, it's a wonderful allegory of what it's like living and, and trying to follow after God, to come to know Christ, and then the trials after. But there's a scene for the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, you might know it, where I'm going with this Christian goes to this house, and it's the house of the interpreter who's trying to help him understand what faith is like. And he takes him into a room, and there's a wall with a fireplace, and there's a guy dumping buckets of water to put out the fire, and it, the fire's not going out, and so Christian is going how does this work? Fire should be going out. Water's being dumped on it. And the interpreter says, come to me and look on the other side of the wall. And on the other side of the wall, there's another man with a vial of oil and pouring oil on the fire. And the fire is not going to go out as long as the oil keeps being poured into it, no matter how much water. And he says, so what is this? And the interpreter says, the one pouring the water is the devil. It is disbelief. Trying to extinguish your love or experience of the love of God, understanding he loves you in Christ. And on the other side is Christ himself pouring oil on this. And the moral of the story the man tells Christian is to teach you, it's hard for those suffering to see how this work of grace is maintained in our hearts. Because we just see the one side of it. But Romans 5, 3 to 5 teaches us, we may only see this side of it, but we know the other side of it. We know it. We know that as we're experiencing life in a fallen world and the temptation to disbelieve, God and his grace through the spirit in your heart is pouring the love of God into your heart. So you know that that suffering is not 
his displeasure with you. Could be his chastising. Could be. But it's not his displeasure. It's not his wrath or his enmity. That has been removed. You have peace with God. And this is the work that God graciously does for us and in us that allows us to rejoice in our sufferings because it gives us a hope, a hope that's experienced and then draws us back to see how much God loves us. So the final question I have for you this morning is what is your hope built on this morning? Maybe in your immediacy of maybe being in the church, there's a line that comes to mind and should. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I mean, that's a summary statement of Romans 5, 3 to 5. What is my hope? It's built on nothing less than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that wonderful hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand, written by a man named Robert Moat in the 1800s, who was a cabinet maker, converted at a younger age, but just continued on making cabinets till he was 55, then became a preacher, preached for 21 years after that, never missed a Sunday until he died. That's faithfulness. But he writes this hymn back in his cabinet-making days before he had switched over to the life of a preacher. And he was just walking to work one day, and that, that thought came into his mind, and so he wrote it down. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, not knowing what he would do with it, and tucked it away, a couple of the verses. And then that Sunday, a brother in his church said, my wife is ill and dying. Would you come over? we just like when someone comes to share a scripture and sing with us. And so when they got there, he, they couldn't find the hymn book to sing, but he pulls out this piece of paper on which he wrote those lines. And he taught, the, he taught the dying woman those lines today, and she asked him to sing it again. And this is how God works in our lives. He takes whatever suffering we're going through and somehow intertwines his, his sovereign kindness to us and brings it along in just the right time. And now here we are today, 200 years later, with a wonderful truth, with a wonderful song in our heart, that our salvation is secure and we know it because it's built on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our performance, not our works, but on the work of Christ on our behalf. What good news for us today. If you're not a Christian here today, you can have hope. And you may want hope, but what I'm trying to help you see is more than what you want is what you need. You may want hope today, but you need Christ. And in his wonderful work and salvation, he both meets your need and your want. So I haven't peddled some, yeah, Jesus, all the wants you have. Just, just come down and sign up for Jesus today. That's not what we do. We come to Christ because we see our desperate need. And we see that he has provided that need in his salvation. You can give your life to Christ today. As he works in your heart through his word to show you that your righteousness needs to be in him. And any other thing you would stand on before God at the end of your life won't stand. It's Christ's righteousness that we need, that we trust in. He lived a perfect life. He died a death in our place on the cross. He rose from the grave to prove that that death was not final. That the penalty and punishment for sin 
won't be final when you put your faith in Christ. Like Christ, you will rise again and stand before God and either point to your own goodness and righteousness or to his. And he offers you his today if you'll come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning that falls afresh on our hearts, that is, as the scripture said today, a pouring out of the love of God in our hearts through the Spirit's work that we, your children, who in the Spirit can cry out, Abba, Father, and be, be reminded as the Spirit testifies in our hearts, we are sons and daughters of God. And so having been given the Spirit and living in the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us be full of His fruit today as we would leave, rejoicing in the blessings of the gospel that, that slice through our sufferings and help see the character being produced and allow us then to rejoice and even tell others of the good news of Christ this week. Help us to be salt and light in this world, knowing that we have found hope in Jesus and we can offer that to others. We thank you. This is all your grace to us today. And as we sang earlier, to grace we are debtors, not to the law, but to the grace you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for him, and it's his name we pray. Amen.